Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we're going to start with a special Clash of Orders mini-series. In the context of the war in Ukraine, many people, especially in the West, have talked about the breakdown of the European security order and the rules-based order. And even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've heard warnings that we're increasingly seeing a hollowing out of the, the liberal international order. And what we want to do now is to talk to various distinguished intellectuals and experts about this idea of order, to what extent we lived in a rules-based order that was seen uh, as such around the world, and how different powers are conceptualizing the notion of order itself and the the future of of global order. I'm very happy to start this series with a special guest today, Rana Mitter, who's a professor at the University of Oxford and a historian of China and author of many books, including most recently, China's Good War. So, Rana, thank you very much for joining. What we want to do with this podcast is is look at sort of five big questions about how order is seen in different places. And obviously, it's a bit reductive to think that a single person is going to be able to tell us how 1.4 billion people think about the, the notion of order. But I think it is very striking what different assumptions people have depending on on where they are sitting and what their history is and I think that it'd be really interesting to to try and look at how they differ from from power to power and very grateful to you to to try and help people who are studying China less closely than you to to understand some of the things which have come out of Chinese history and Chinese education which shape the way that they look at the world today. So we have five sort of questions that we're going to go through. And obviously, we can have digressions uh, whilst we travel through these five questions. But the first one is really just to start with this idea of of order and and how it's being threatened. Looking at things from a Chinese perspective, what do you think the the top threats to to order are today and in the near future in the minds of of, of China's leaders and, and the thinkers who surround them? Well, Mark, first, let me say it's a huge pleasure to be here on the podcast. I've benefited greatly over the years from ECFR's writings and uh, podcasts as well. So it's great to have a chance to be part of that conversation. I think putting your finger on the word order is a really important way of getting into the mindset of how a lot of the leadership elites in China think about this issue. So with that, I want to indicate two things. The first is that, as you very wisely said at the beginning, I will repeat, there are 1.3 billion Chinese, and I do not make any claim whatsoever to speak on behalf of any of them, let alone all of them, but nonetheless try and give some indication of where I think some of the thinking lies. And the second thought is to make it clear that of the Chinese I'm talking about, when we're talking about China or you know the Chinese elites, We are talking mostly about people who are very senior in the Chinese Communist Party. They are, of course, the leaders of a one-party authoritarian state. That doesn't mean that everything that the party has to say is necessarily shared by everyone in China. It also, contrary to what some who want to push back might say, doesn't mean what they have to say is completely disconnected 
from what the wider Chinese thinking public thinks as well. We have to understand it in a more complex way. So let me drill down into that term order as well. When we're talking about it in the context of, of geopolitics, we are tending to think of order in the sense of the way that the world is structured, the post-1945 international order. But the Chinese also tend to think of order uh, in that sense, also as order in the sense of stability, wanding. That's something they would contrast with the word chaos. So if you think about that division, not between sort of, I don't know, order and anarchy perhaps, but order and chaos as being a division that is always really live in the mind of any Chinese policymaker, whether domestically or internationally, you get some idea, I think, of, of the framework within which these types of decision are made. So let's get to a specific. You did ask me what I thought um, the top threat might be to order in China if I were sitting, I'm not, I hasten to add, but if I were sitting in Zhulanhai, the leadership compound in the center of Beijing, I think you're probably more likely to have visited that place than I have. Uh, I am, uh, Mark, I know that over the years you've had a lot of interesting conversations with some very high level Chinese thinkers. But let me put on that hat for a moment. I think that of all the things we might talk about today, and we'll talk about several, I would put a domestic problem first, and that is the problem of economic inequality. I'm going to say that of all the things that I see when I read, you know, week after week, sometimes day after day, readouts from the Politburo, very, very official, very, you know, staid bits of writing in some ways, but also ones that tell you quite a lot about what they actually want people to think they're thinking about. And then actually Chinese social media, which of course is censored heavily, but nonetheless actually a much more freeform way of seeing what, you know, the middle classes in China are thinking. Economic inequality, one way or another, keeps coming back. It takes lots of different forms. Let's take one simple one, rural versus urban. Now, China, well, you know this, has been urbanizing faster, at greater pace than I think any other society on Earth. Uh, technically speaking, it's a slight twist of statistics, but technically speaking, more than 50% of China's population now lives in areas designated as cities or at least as urban population. And that is a massive contrast from 90% plus in the countryside in the early part of the 20th century. And yet that means that, of course, something just under 50% of the population is still living in the countryside. And because of China's um, internal passport system, the Hukou system, internal residence permit system, not quite unique, but very unusual um, in global terms, certainly for a country as large as, uh, as China. That's one of the ways in which the government both fears that order might break down and people are simply allowed to move between the city and the countryside freely, which they can't at the moment. But on the other hand, also worries about whether that rural urban divide is continuing to embed an economic inequality. And again, top of the head figures here, and you could drill down into them, but on average, urban areas tend to be probably about three times as rich as an average rural area. There are rich parts of the countryside, there are poor cities. So, you know, let's not say it's universal. That's the kind of division we might, might be thinking about in that context. One other example uh, in terms of economic inequality and how it deals with, uh, or how it can feed in potentially to the problem of order. So I've said rural, another one would be age and youth. Now, China, and again, we might get back to this a bit more, is currently one of the fastest aging societies in the world. Again, because partly of global trends, lots of societies that become wealthier uh, tend to have fewer children and to get on average older, Japan, South Korea, Germany, all good examples. 
But China, of course, did one thing famously for about 40 years, which was to have an enforced one-child policy, not for every single person in China, but the vast majority. And that, it turns out, four decades later, has really built in a system that's almost impossible to reverse quickly in terms of changing that demographic direction. And that means that young people are now having to earn, in a very difficult labor market, large amounts of money in which they're supposed to you know, buy somewhere to live and look after potentially two parents and four grandparents uh, if they have you know, a child of their own. The government's now reversed track and said, well, actually, you need to have as many kids as possible rather than uh, restricting that. But today's youth in China are saying, well, actually, we don't have the economic opportunities that were maybe there even a decade ago with um, subsidized childcare, all these sorts of things that the old Maoist system used to provide. So actually, that's a new form of inequality. We simply can't afford to have the kind of lifestyle that the government is now telling us they want us to have in terms of larger uh, families. So two quick examples there. There are a dozen more, but they show some of these divisions that I think we can tell are really preying on the minds of the Politburo at the highest level in China and actually China's numerous think tanks and policy thinkers who debate the, the, the issues in contemporary China. So domestic issues in the four as in many other parts of the world at the moment, given what's going on. But at the same time, I mean, one of the things that's been very striking to me, talking to friends and experts in China over the last few months, is also how large COVID looms compared to other parts of the world. I mean, COVID was is something that many people in the West are now kind of transitioning out of. But in China, it's still quite a dominant part of, of everyday life. How significant do you think that is as a, a, another part of those kind of domestic challenges. Well, you're absolutely right. And it's very much on my list of things that really do eat away at the idea of order in China at the moment. So just to remind the listeners, they may not have been keeping a close eye on the regulations, but essentially China is now, globally speaking, pretty unusual in having a still pretty rigorous, harsh, you might say, quarantine regime, both in terms of coming in and out of the country. It means that, you know, if you are, well, if you're a foreigner, it's still very hard to get in. But also if you're Chinese and you leave the country, which you are allowed to do, you then have to go into about 10 days uh, to two weeks of quarantine, depending slightly on the, on the city, I think. Nonetheless, it's not a quick in and out. You do have to basically build in that time. And that, of course, puts lots of people off. And domestically, as we've seen again the last couple of weeks, the seaside resort of uh, Sanya down in Hainan Island, you know, China's Hawaii, you might say, um, suddenly found itself having to deal with 80,000 holiday guests who couldn't basically get their flights home because a case or a few cases or COVID had been found in the surrounding area though, of this holiday resort. And everyone's suddenly told, you're not going back to the office on Monday, you're not going anywhere on, on, on Monday. And that's, that, that, that's ongoing. And I think that it's having a couple of effects that I think are worrying in large part for the Chinese government. One is that it is making one of the potential engines for the re-ignition of the Chinese economy post-COVID much hard to get fired up. And that's the SME, small and medium enterprises sector. One of the things that has made China one of the most dynamic economies in the world over the last few decades, and you know, whatever else you think about China's system, and I think you and I, Mark, as you know, good liberal-minded people are not always very keen on the authoritarian form of government. But in terms of economic growth, it's hard to argue that China has found at least some ways of really over decades stimulating growth. And small and medium enterprises and basically relatively low levels of regulation in some areas, certainly compared to another Asian giant in the shape, shape of India, which also has plenty of entrepreneurship, but rather more rape in, in some ways. That's made a difference. 
But the problem is, at the moment, the biggest, I'm trying to think of the right metaphor, the biggest ribbon of red tape, if that's the right way to put it, that can suddenly be put on a business is COVID restrictions. And if you're running, let's say, a small consumer-oriented business in a city like Shanghai or Zhengzhou or somewhere like that, in a medium-tier, actually, city where there's lots of opportunities, but suddenly, at the click of a set of fingers, the drop of a hat, you're told, well, look, actually, your township area has a COVID case, you're shutting down for the next few days or maybe weeks. It's very difficult to predict whether your business will get back on the front foot. And that is one of the things that's beginning to create the feeling that, well, maybe this isn't going to work out. And this isn't just sort of anecdote. You can look basically at the figures and they come out pretty regularly. And for the most part, they seem fairly convincing because they're quite bleak from the central statistical authorities of China that show consumer spending way, way down compared to what it was pre-pandemic and not reigniting as they hoped it would because COVID restrictions continue to essentially make people feel they're very uncertain. So that's definitely something that, you know, the, the, the authorities would argue this is about order, but it's about making sure that you're safe from disease. But for many people, it does seem that the cure may be worse than the disease itself. I want to get on to some of the other questions. But, you know, in terms of all the other things that are going on in the world and creating chaos, whether it's, you know, Russian aggression, American foreign policy, climate change, technological revolutions, where do those things sort of fit into the... We've sort of thought about, you know, what might be the top five, let's say, um, dangers from the Chinese Communist Party's point of view. I'm not saying I endorse these for a moment, but, you know, from their point of view. You know, we've talked a about the economy and economic inequality, and we talked a little bit about COVID restrictions. I'd say three other things on the top, on the top of that list, I think, combine in certain ways and in different areas of order as being continuing concerns. One is the relationship with the United States, because the relationship with the United States is not just about relationship with Washington. It's about international trade. It's about also the continuing American security presence, military presence in the seas and countries around China. So the treaty alliance with Japan. And within uh, China, if you were Chinese, I suppose you can say with Taiwan. Sorry, within China. Well, Taiwan, obviously. Uh, so Taiwan, in that case, yes. So in the case of Beijing, saying that essentially, you know, Taiwan has always been part of China and actually anyone who claims that it's not um, is, you know, violating our sovereignty. But obviously a very different relationship exists with Washington, which, of course, and just to make it clear, Washington has always made it clear officially they do not recognize Taiwanese independence and they're not going to recognize Taiwan independence. That's not what their game is. Beijing often accuses them of that, but of course, that's not at all what Washington said they want to do. But they also want to maintain a, a tight relationship in terms of supplying arms to Taiwan. And that, of course, for those who are looking at the difference with someone like Hong Kong, which obviously was a couple of years ago placed on a new national security law, uh, Taiwan continues to maintain armed forces of its own. And the Chinese would essentially see all of these factors, which have to, have to do, as they see it, with US security presence in the region as being a source of disorder, uncertainty and turmoil. The other two I'll mention briefly. One is technology, which, of course, at one level, it's about innovation in China, and China has one of the most innovative tech ecologies anywhere in the world. Alibaba, Tencent, uh, you know, a whole variety of big players, both in the private and public uh, sector. If you don't believe me, just you know, ask uh, anyone who's a little thing called TikTok. But at the same time, China's leaders also recognize that tech, as in the West, has had a huge capacity to disrupt society as well. Social media has been a game changer in China in all sorts of ways. I and mean, yes, it is censored. There's no doubt about that. But it still has plenty of capacity to get people's feelings really riled up on a whole variety of areas. So the possibilities and cautions associated with tech, that will be one other factor. And then the last one on my on my list 
it's what I'd call culture more generally. And we may talk about, you know, issues of freedom in, in a little bit more, more broadly speaking and how they define that. But I would say that one of the things that was a sort of accepted bargain, unspoken, but accepted until maybe three or four years ago, from the 1990s, let's say, until the late 2010s in China, was you, the Chinese public, says the Communist Party, you, you, the Chinese public, do not get to talk about politics. You certainly don't get to talk about multi-party democracy. That's all wicked Western stuff, you know. No way. However, you want to follow pop musicians? That's fine. You want to wear your own fashion? That's fine. You know, you want to basically watch endless amounts of really gut-rottingly bad TV talent shows or whatever, you know, do what you like. It's not the Cultural Revolution. That, that's all fine. That's shifting quite strongly. Nowadays, and I would say certainly since the beginning of the 2020s, the party, and that probably means Xi Jinping personally, but, you know, beyond that, the party, perhaps people like Wang Huning, who's you know, currently China's top propaganda and ideology chief, very close to, uh, to, to, to Xi Jinping from what, what we know, is actually saying, well, no. Actually, there are norms. There are ideas about what it means to be normal in China. And many of those ideas would look very familiar to anyone who lived in, I don't know, 1950s America. Let's say, you know, men should be men. Women should be women. You know, ideas of gender identity crossing boundaries, which happens in China as it does in all, all societies. Not very keen on that at all at the top levels of the Chinese Communist Party. And sometimes this can seem almost trivial. You know, I'm giving an example from last year where there was this huge campaign online um, against boy bands, you know, kind of rock bands, because they used too much moisturizer on their face. And this was thought in some way to, 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 to not be masculine. But behind this, you know, very kind of small scale seeming issue was a much bigger set of messages from the party we are concerned about culture. We're concerned about a term that actually has been used for, for decades now, Jinshan Wuran, uh, spiritual pollution. And we are not going to let young men who want to use clearasil on their faces eat away at the revolution tradition that the party has brought uh, more forward. So that eating away at the cultural order is yet another element where I think the party is suddenly getting a lot more hardcore. So let's go on to the second kind of big question, which is about the sort of mental models for uh, order which people have in China. There are lots of talk about different kinds of orders, bipolar world, multipolar worlds, the liberal international order, global governance, etc. When a Chinese leader thinks about what order looks like, what, what is it? Yeah, I think it's worth thinking about how a Chinese leader thinks about order and how that, what the leader thinks, links to a wider sense of Chinese public opinion. And one of the things, and I know that you've done work on this in the past, um, Mark, is that it is meaningful, I think, today to talk about Chinese public opinion as something that shapes elite policy opinion in a way that perhaps wasn't the case uh, earlier, because again, social media gives an outlet in which people can make their views known. So I'd say at the elite levels where people are talking to think tanks, uh, they're kind of reading policy journals and all the sort of stuff that people who know, I don't know, ECFR or, you know, the Washington DC scene, whatever, might think was quite familiar, except of course this happens in, in Beijing in, in a rather different context, would say it's about multilateralism. That's the term they'd use, but it's not necessarily the same meaning of multilateralism as might be heard, say, in Brussels or in, in, in Washington. What it really means is a reduction of American hegemony in the world. In other words, it's multilateralism as opposed to unipolar. And the corollary of that, the, the element of that that sort of follows from that, 
is that other actors, <coughs> China, for instance, that says are clearing their throats, therefore gets to rise in the world in terms of being a key player in that multipolar world. And I think that most of those elite policymakers, whether they're in government or in the kind of affiliated think tanks that you know sit around in Haiyan and other parts of, 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 of Beijing or even parts of Shanghai as well, probably don't think even now realistically in the short term this means that China takes the place of the US as a global hegemon. I think that's, but they are looking at a world in which actually quite a small number of power blocks and actors get to call the shots. Yes, still the US, although somewhat reduced, China, the European Union, and maybe, you know, in different, in the European Union, probably the economic front rather than the security front, but those sorts of, of actors. Now, I mentioned public opinion because there, you know, if, if what we just discussed, if we're doing it in Freudian terms, uh, is sort of the, the ego of, uh, of China, then the id, the kind of raw, throbbing idea of what um, multilateralism is, is about. I'm not sure that multilateralism has ever throbbed in quite that sort of way before, but we'll let it throb for the purposes of this, of this discussion. It's basically about China being on top. You know, this is what the conversations amongst many of the most active nationalist groupings are on Chinese um, social media. This is about the Americans have had their way far too long. I mean, who cares about the Europeans? You know, uh, they're, they're, they sit there thinking about trade and they haven't really got any, any guns behind them anyway. But the Americans have got plenty of guns. But it's time to stop, you know, letting them have their way and instead point out that China needs to be much, much higher up the tree and essentially to be the power that calls the shots. Now, you'll find that on social media. You will not, I think, for the most part, find most, even now in a very nationalistic time, most mainstream Chinese think tankers, and actually very few of any Chinese leaders literally saying those things, certainly for public consumption. The story is much more about multilateralism, cooperation, and so forth. But it is very much with the strong idea that American hegemonism has to be, to use a good Marxist term, has to be reduced in the uh, in the world. So that leads into the sort of third question, which is this idea of the the, the obsession of, of many people in Europe and in America is the rule based order. To what extent, in the Chinese mind, do we have a rule based order at the moment? Actually, more than people might think. And I'm going to do a little plug, if I may, uh, Mark. Apologies for this, but I've got an article coming out in Washington Quarterly in just a few weeks from uh, now, which actually looks at this question of whether it's a bit of an old chestnut, but I try to give it a new spin, which is whether China is a revisionist or a revolutionary power in global order. And like all good academic articles, the answer is well, neither exactly. It's more complicated than that. But let me try and give a kind of thumbnail version of what the complexity is. China is a status quo actor overall. But it is choosing to reinvent, reappropriate, redefine the pillars and structures of global order in ways that are much more amenable to China's preferences and interests. So on the first part, let me just say that one of the areas that I found most fascinating in terms of China not rejecting the global order, but taking ownership of it, is the way in which repeatedly top leaders, I'm talking Xi Jinping, I'm talking Foreign Minister Wang Yi, I mean like the really elite people, were going around the world when they were going around the world, <laughs> not so much since COVID, but they'll be coming back, no doubt. We hear rumours that the uh, G20 summit, I think later this year, may, may see uh, Xi Jinping uh, make his first foreign visit for two and a half years. Okay, so they are going around using a particular phrasing, which is a historian I found fascinating, which is everyone should remember that China was just not, not just a signatory, but the first signatory to the United Nations Charter back in 1945. And technically that's true because of alphabetical order and so forth there at the top left. But the point is that China these days is no longer 
pushing the line, well, actually, someone else invented this order, it's none of our business. It's actually saying, look, we were there in 1945 when the darn thing was signed. Now, they don't mention that it was actually Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists, the Chinese who came before the communists, who were actually doing most of the signing. Although there was one communist delegate, actually, at San Francisco at that time, a man called Dong Bin. So, you know, a little bit mix and match. But the point is that today's China is bringing back that far-off moment of three-quarters of a century ago, because they want to say, yep, we were like Dean Acheson, US Secretary of State at the time, present at the creation. It's ours too. But then that zips you into the present day when they say, and therefore, for that historical reason, and also, frankly, because China is on some counts the second biggest payer of dues into the UN after the United States, we get to define what these terms mean. So Human Rights Council, fantastic. Loving human rights. Give us as many human rights as you can. We, you know, we, we are human rights. But human rights... It's about economic development, first and foremost. So it's not like, you know, uh, Russia basically breaking national sovereignty in the most violent way possible by invading Ukraine. China is very much keen to try and make sure that the structures of existing order are maintained in most cases as much as possible, but redefined in terms which are suitable to China's interests. Uh, this could also be seen in um, areas such as uh, the ambiguity over the vote over the invasion of Ukraine, where China famously, despite having a friendship without limits with Russia, abstained, of course, as did India for different reasons. And this shows, I think, that kind of balance in China of wanting both to be of the existing order and not explicitly to kick it uh, in, in the legs, as the Russians seem to have wanted to do, but at the same time also to make sure that it's adapted over time in a way that suits China's preferences, which are for economic growth as an overall global good over individuated civil rights, and the general sense that when you have a choice, strongly bounded national sovereignty is much better than transnational ideas such as the famous in the West, notorious in China, R2P concept of responsibility to protect, which was very big in international relations in the 90s and 2000s, but has been less so perhaps since the Iraq war in, in, in the early 2000s. I think one of the other things which is very striking is the the way that China's both been willing to reshape a lot of those existing institutions, but then to build parallel institutions of its own. There doesn't seem any, any contradiction between the, the, the two. But we should probably keep moving because we, we are running out of time and, and we have a couple more questions. The fourth question is really about some of the core concepts which are being bandied around when people talk about order. And there's sort of three that I would love love to hear your take on, on how China thinks about them. But there might be other ones that, that are more um, relevant from a Chinese perspective as well. But power is obviously an important thing. The idea of, of freedom, justice, they're all things which seem to be quite tied up with, with our discussions about order. How are these things defined and, and seen from a Chinese perspective? And are there other kind of core concepts to do with order which we should be thinking about? I'd say if I had to try and provide one adjective which binds overall Chinese political definitions of these terms that you've mentioned, justice, freedom, and power. Yes, of course, how could I forget power? I'd say that it has a preference towards highly collectivist definition. So stick with power. And for many years, even now, actually, but at first um, in the 20, 2000, 2010s, publicly, China compiled a comparator list of what it called comprehensive national power. In other words, weighing up every single major country in the world and how they fared in terms of military power, economic power, even cultural power, 
United States, you know, always very much at the top of the list, but China rising up. When China was beginning to rise up the list a bit too much from the point of view of good publicity, they decided that actually it was best to sort of keep this a bit more discreet. So those lists have not been as public in the last few years as they had before. But that idea that essentially power is the collective entity that those particular types of separate power come together and could be defined as part of a national project, I think is a very indicative and important way of understanding how they put it together. That links to the other concepts you mentioned, justice, very much in favour of justice, but the idea of, say, collective justice for countries that it feels have been hard done by in the world, of which China, of course, sits at the top of the list. But that is a collective sense of China as a whole, rather than individual cases of justice or injustice for any one individual Chinese person, which would be regarded as being part of you know, national business only within boundaries and therefore not the business of other people. And finally, on freedom, I would say that broadly speaking, China to some extent takes a version, but only a version, of what the great economist Amartya Sen put forward, the idea of economic development as a means of creating capabilities and freedom, and puts it in a direction which Amartya Sen himself, I suspect, would never have actually endorsed, which is the idea that economic freedom is a prior necessity and essentially a substitute for particular types of individuated civil liberty. In other words, the idea that economic freedoms, um, which have been to be fair, pretty you know, widespread in China since the 1980s, are essentially a better and substitute um, notion of freedom compared to what they would regard as a chaotic and essentially destructive idea that individuated choices about what should be done in terms of critique of government and so forth are worthwhile idea. So all of those terms are very freely used, but all of them are defined in terms of a quite collectivist Chinese state project, both at home and abroad. So last question is, is could possibly have been designed for you, Rana, because it's a question about history in the past uh-huh. and, and what the kind of key events and periods are which shape people's understandings of, of, of the world today. In the West, you know, we've heard lots about 1938 and about the First World War and other kind of things in our recent history as a way of understanding Ukraine and other kinds of topics. What do you think the, the sort of key moments are in the Chinese imaginaire when they look out at today, which sort of shape some of the ways that they're thinking about choices in 2022? I think that historical analogy is very, very powerful in China. And perhaps one of the areas in which Western policymakers tend to underestimate what's important in China is not looking enough at what historical examples are used and which ones aren't. I would say, I mean, very briefly, because I could, as you know, probably rant on about this for ages and uh, would hope that perhaps another time we might, might yet do that, that some elements in 20th century history, a time when China was repeatedly under attack from, from various sources, have proved quite productive from the point of view of contemporary analogies. So the Second World War, and you mentioned 1938, but don't forget that China had been fighting against Japan for a year already by that stage. World War II began in 1937 in China, not in 1939, as in, in Europe. And um, I'll just give you Xi Jinping, because, you know, go straight to the heart of the matter here. He has said in various public speeches, words to the effects of, the reason that China's Second World War experience is so important, the war of resistance against Japan, as the uh, Chinese tend to, uh, to call it even, even now, is that it was an occasion when China was attacked through no fault of its own, by a foreign enemy, fought back, resisted, and won. And you can see why, as a myth-making source of political capital, 
that would be very useful indeed. But it's also worth noting how many, how few other examples there are that you could do with that. You know, the Opium Wars of the mid-19th century, horrible, deeply exploitative of China, but tragically, China lost those wars. And in the early 20th century, the warlord civil war battles don't really have that. Kind. Indeed, the Chinese civil war between the communists and the nationalists, still very painful in many ways. So World War II, as for the Brits in a different way, still provides a kind of powerful example. But there's one other example that goes in the other direction. A couple of years ago, it was the 70, uh, 2020, it was the 70th anniversary of the outbreak of the Korean War. But Korean War is not the term that's usually used in Chinese to describe that conflict between 1950 and 1953. It's generally known there, well, a variety of terms. One of them is Kangmei, resistance to America. And you might imagine why in the kind of turbulent last days of the Trump presidency and the beginning of, of, of the Biden presidency, China might be using a historical metaphor, an analogy from the recent past, to essentially galvanize people in the direction of pushing back against America. So there are plenty of other examples and also some interesting ones of, of case studies that aren't um, used as much as they uh, they might be because they don't necessarily hit the right, the right historical note. But seeing those particular examples of recent wars used as very potent analogies in contemporary Chinese politics is something that happens over and over again and is a reason that it's well worth studying modern Chinese history if you're going to be an analyst of contemporary Chinese politics. And you think that those 20th century examples are even more important than, you know, the millennia of Chinese history and different ideas of Sinocentric orders and the tributary system and the warring states era, etc.? Uh, well, first of all, I say that uh, China historians will sort of slightly kind of fall on the floor and bang their heads uh, if you talk about the tributary systems. This is one of those great myths that doesn't really actually exist, but uh, we'll, we'll leave that discussion to a, a different podcast another another time. The difference, I'd say, is that the long centuries, indeed millennia of Chinese history, not quite as many millennia as the Chinese state sometimes says, but quite a lot nonetheless, are more to do with a sort of positive national narrative of a long heritage, which of course the Chinese Communist Party itself rejected half a century ago during the Cultural Revolution, but is now you know, reappropriated and reclaimed as an era of creating this long national culture. So that does one job. Modern history, which has basically been for much of the, the 20th century, a very tragic history of invasion, occupation, war, and millions of deaths, plays a different purpose of reminding people how China has been attacked from outside on many occasions and therefore to this day, as everyone knows, maintains a certain wariness about any idea that involves violation of national sovereignty, for instance. So I'd say different bits of history serve different sorts of political purpose, but knowing about both of them is important to see the wider context. I can ask you one more slightly conceptual and meta question, because one of the things which struck me when I started talking to Chinese academics about the nature of Chinese intellectual resources is that they were very critical of the sort of Hegelian impulse which we have in the West, seeing history as this kind of stadial progress where you start with the East and the kind of primitive notion of, of China and you end up with Germany and they kind of see that being, you know, taken to the next stage by Fukuyama, where the US becomes the kind of ultimate stage of, of development. What is the sort of Chinese philosophy of history? Is there one which kind of underlies these different things, which, which might be a counterpoint to the sort of Hegelian idea of, of history going through these different stages? I'd say, first of all, it's not as if Chinese historians and people who write about history in China, which are not always quite the same thing, because a lot of politicians actually write quite a lot of history. Um, it's not as if that 
historical community is uh, hostile to Hegel because, amongst other things, they spend a lot of time thinking about a guy who learns a lot from him called Karl Marx, who uh, remains actually a very important influence in terms of contemporary Chinese thinking. And indeed, Xi Jinping, who's not a historian as such, but certainly thinks about history a lot, has referred to himself frequently um, as, a 21st, as being a 21st century Marxist. I would say that, broadly speaking, there is still a body of Chinese historians who do actually take quite a grand sweep view. And that's partly because they find themselves, at least at the moment, in a position where there is an argument to be made and goodness knows there are plenty of people in the West who've been making it for positive or negative reasons about China being the next stage in that kind of rise and fall of civilizations. It's notable that there's a historian who isn't read so much now, I think, in, in China, but actually had a revival in China in the 1980s in a way that he didn't do in the West. And that's a guy called Arnold Toynbee, who used to be one of the most famous historians in the world. And he literally made the cover of Time magazine in the 1950s. Not very widely read uh, these uh, days, um, but nonetheless a sort of important intellectual figure. Anyway, he was revived in China in translation in the 1980s because in that moment when they were coming to economic reform, understanding the rise and fall of civilizations, which is what Toynbee wrote about, suddenly became an intellectually more relevant exercise. I wouldn't say that we're looking at a new kind of Toynbeeism uh, in the present day, but I'd say that you might be, well, you wouldn't be surprised, but, you know, people might be surprised that actually quite a lot of trends that look very familiar from Western um, historical thinking, including the idea of whether or not, you know, we're in a modern moment or a postmodern moment, are very, very actively debated in the, uh, in the Chinese academy. And in terms of the historical profession, I think it's fair to say that actually a tremendous number of the topics which are researched by historians, I mean, actually working in universities as opposed to political actors who like to draw on history, um, are very, very recognisable in terms of their interests and their methodologies from anyone who works in history elsewhere. You know, social historians using archives to look at social trends, political historians reading the, you know, uh, uh, archival materials of decision makers to decide how foreign policy uh, works. So I personally wouldn't exaggerate the differences in terms of the way uh, that China looks at history. But I would say as a final note that if you want to push on that, that yes, there is a genre of Chinese history writing at the moment, we'll see if it lasts, but at the moment, which does get sort of piggybacked on that idea of historical progression and does see the rise of China as part of that progression as a successor to the United States, which of course in turn was a successor to the, the British Empire. That, that thinking is certainly there, at least in part of the um, historian adjacent part of the Chinese intellectual world. Great. Well, it's been fantastic talking to you, Ron. There's one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. Are there other things that you think would be helpful resources? I'm going to cheat on the bookshelf. I'm going to recommend a Chinese TV drama. I generally say if you want to kind of get to know places, watch a lot of TV, because it means you can sit in your hotel room and uh, watch telly and call it research. And I'm going to recommend one that comes from 2017. It's called In the Name of the People. And it's a drama. It's basically a bit like Line of Duty, if you're a UK listener, or maybe The Untouchables. That's a movie from you know, the 1980s. It's about an anti-corruption squad in China, basically taking down corrupt officials. And I think it's very interesting because it shows the quite wide range of what can be done to actually talk in a popular drama about the fact that corruption exists in Chinese society and how the state feels happy about sort of fictionalizing the idea that it's dealing with it. I mean, clearly it's a romanticized version of that, 
But the fact they put it on telly at all, I think tells you something about the sort of boundaries of what is censored in China, which is loads, and what actually can be talked about, which also is, uh, is loads. Add to which it's actually a really pretty engaging drama. So in the name of the people, do look it up and watch an episode or two. Fantastic. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know about it and subscribing to it so you can listen to the rest of the series. And while you're there, do give us a positive review and a five-star rating. We'll put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now, from Rana Mitta and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and the editor of this episode is Marlene Rieden.